Good morning. We are on the final week of our Advent series for 2020. We've been talking about hope and peace and joy. And today for our Christmas Sunday, we are talking about the love of God. You see, above all, Christmas is about the love of God. The most frequently quoted verse in the Bible reminds us of this very truth. We just read it in our Advent readings for today. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is what Christmas is all about. Out of God's great and generous love, he sent Jesus to come and save us. And then by extension, we are encouraged to order our lives around this love and share it with our world. 1 John 4, verse 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So today for our Christmas Sunday, I'd like to talk through three texts in the Christmas narrative that reveal aspects of God's love. Let's begin with the story in Luke. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all of the things they had heard and seen, which they were just as they had been told. When we read this passage through our modern-day eyes, it's easy for us to assume that this is a, a very warm and cozy moment in Scripture. And in some ways it is. I mean, how appropriate for God to invite shepherds to the birth of Jesus. Shepherds are natural caretakers. They guarded their sheep from predators like wolves. So how nice of it for God to invite shepherds to watch over Mary and Joseph and Jesus. But back in the first century, shepherds were seen in a very different light. They were not the big winners of their day. In fact, they were seen at the very bottom of the social ladder. They were poor and they were lonely and they were outsiders. They lived on the outskirts of the city with their sheep, and because of that, they were seen as low class. 
Now, to be sure, Scripture uses a number of positive images around shepherding. God is our shepherd. Um, pastors are seen as shepherds. And even Jesus calls himself a shepherd. But he says he's the good shepherd to contrast himself from the bad shepherds of the day. So for sure, there are good images around shepherding. But to understand this well, we have to understand that in the first century, shepherds were seen as low class. The Bible Expositor's Commentary puts it this way, Shepherds were considered untrustworthy, and their work made them ceremonially unclean. God's angelic birth announcement wasn't given in the halls of power. It wasn't announced to government officials or to the religious elites. It wasn't given at the temple or the center of the city. It was announced to outsiders living outside of the walls of the city. It was given to shepherds. And we have to think and stop and ask ourselves, why was that the case? What was God trying to accomplish? There's a second sign that's important for us to pay attention to in this narrative. The shepherds were given a sign to look for, a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with what a manger is, a manger was basically a feeding trough for the animals. It was where the animals would get their feed. When my kids were younger, as a family, we used to make visits to the Houston Zoo. And we love the Houston Zoo because of the way it was set up, the way it is set up. There's a proximity at the Houston Zoo that you don't get with some of the major zoos, even like the San Diego Zoo, which is world famous. But in Houston, when you go to see animals at the zoo, you get an up, upfront and close and personal look at how they are. But one of the downsides of that is also you get a real sense of the mess that animals make. Because let's face it, zoos are a fun place to visit, but probably a rotten place to live in. There's a lot of mess that animals make. And one of our most vivid memories as a family was watching the elephants one day when the zookeeper had to come in and take care of their mess. These mountains of mess that they had made. And from that experience, I have a feeling my kids will never want to work in a zoo. But imagine this. Imagine having to make this horrible choice as a young mother. Having to place your newborn baby in a feeding trough, in a manger, in a stinky barn. When my kids were born, they were in a hospital surrounded by doctors and nurses and the best medical care. When the Son of God was born, he was placed in a manger. The question is why? Why all these signs? Why this invitation to shepherds? And this is what we learn, first of all, about the love of God through the Christmas narrative. God's love is a humble love. God doesn't love you because you've achieved a lot in life because of your social status, because you've made a name for yourself or you've achieved personal glory. These are not things that are important in the value system of God. God doesn't love you because of these things. And it's been one of the stumbling blocks of humanity since the beginning. We worship power and success and personal glory. We long for it. We'll do anything for it. And when we see other people with it, we worship them 
or we're jealous and we want it for ourselves. We're envious of their situation. The flip side of it also is that when our eyes are focused on these things and this way of loving, we tend to miss out on shepherds that are out in the fields. We tend to miss out on babies that are placed in mangers living in a barn. God's love comes to us and it's a humble love. And in the Christmas season, this humble love causes us to rethink our values. It's a sharp contrast. There is a way that the world has learned to love, and there is a way that God loves. When God's humble love comes to us, it elevates us. It elevates what the rest of the world has forgotten. It lifts us up in the way that we are meant to be lifted up. Augustine, the great theologian of the church, put it this way, In loving me, you made me lovable. Our second text for today comes from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home to be his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The virgin birth is a complicated and a difficult miracle. I mean, not difficult in the sense for God, because, I mean, God is powerful, and he created the universe. He, he breathed into dust and created humanity. God could certainly make the virgin birth miracle happen. But it was difficult in the sense that it came with the burden of shame. I mean, who would have believed a small-town girl who claimed that the Holy Spirit gave her a baby? Much more likely to believe that she was just another unwed teenage pregnancy. She made a critical mistake. Apparently, Joseph had a difficult time with this miracle as well. He didn't get the memo of God. God didn't give him a special angel at first. And so, he had this awkward conversation with Mary. Maybe he noticed a baby bump and was thinking, well, this is not my child. What are we going to do? He started making plans to divorce Mary because back in those days, being engaged was a legal status that required a legal divorce for separation. But as Joseph was making these plans, God sent an angel, confirmed that this was indeed the work of the Holy Spirit and he walked in faith. But from that point on, 
it became a constant struggle for this holy family to deal with the problem of shame for Mary and for Joseph and Jesus. We see this show up later in Mark chapter 6. There's a moment when Jesus is ministering back in his hometown and he's teaching and he's preaching and the people look at him in a funny way and they begin to ask this question. Where did this man get these things? They asked, what's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? This phrase, isn't this Mary's son, is a significant one. In the ancient culture, people were known by their father's last name. They were the son of Joseph. But because the villagers referred to Jesus as the son of Mary, they were basically recalling the shame of this family. They never truly did accept that Joseph was his true father. In the Christmas narrative, there is shame. And Jesus entered the world with shame on his shoulders. What is shame? Brene Brown gives us this definition. She's a shame researcher at the University of Houston and one of the leading voices in helping people to identify this negative emotion. And she says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something that we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. The problem is not that we are flawed, because we are all flawed. Scripture says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And anyone who's really honest with their lives knows that to be human is to be frail and to be broken and to make mistakes. This is who we are. This is the human condition. The fallout spiritually is this, though. This is the problem of shame, is believing that because we are flawed, that somehow God will never love us, that God could never accept us, or that we are excluded for life in His kingdom. This is the problem of shame, that somehow we believe that our flaws exclude us from the love of God. But this is what we learn in the Christmas narrative about God's love. God's love is present even in our shame. God's love is present even in our shame. There might be some of you who are tuning in today who are a bit newer to the faith and maybe newer to church world and certainly want to welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. Our Christmas service is meant to be a place where you can explore more of the faith. But something that's very important to understand about the gospel and about the message of God and Christmas is this. It meets us in our place, in our point of sin and guilt and shame. You know, as we become adults in life, we learn to cover up most of our faults and our mistakes and our failures. That's how we get along in life. We need to show that we are competent enough to make it in this world. And we learn to ignore those things or at least put aside those failure points because they're unpleasant to talk about. And if you're going to be applying for school, for instance, you're not going to write an essay all about your failures in life. 
If you're going to be interviewing for a job, you're not going to spend all the time interviewing and speaking about your shortcomings and the ways that you don't measure up. I mean, who's going to hire you at the end of the day? We learn to live our adult lives covering up the unpleasantries of life and learning to show ourselves as competent. You know, recently, this has been kind of a a fun thing to happen to me, but I was walking our dog, Jax, in the neighborhood, and I've gotten this compliment twice. People have asked me if I train dogs for a living. Now, that's a pretty laughable statement. I almost have to like stop and laugh at that statement because people don't know how many hours I have spent training our puppy and how many times I have completely lost my cool at home. You know, over the last um, several months of having a puppy at home, I have lost my temper more times than in the last several years. And there have been occasions with my family members, Amy and the kids have had to stop me and say, Ted, you just need to leave the room. You need to go cool off because I've gotten so hot and bothered about the dog. We tend to cover up those shortcomings, those moments that are less than glorious, those moments when we lose our cool, when we are not at our best selves. All of us have sides of ourselves that don't measure up, that aren't the best, and we'd rather not talk about because they're embarrassing or they're shameful. But this is an important spiritual truth to recognize. You see, when we come to God, Things get flipped upside down. God actually wants to meet us at our point of shame and guilt and sin. We are not meant to cover these things up before God because God has come to rescue and save us from these very things. And it's in these places, in these darker areas of our lives, that God can bring His light, that God could stand with us in our shame and can bring us out of them. God's love is stronger than our shame. And in the Christmas narrative, we are reminded of how deep this love goes. Our third text for today is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who who has been born king of the Jews. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had been when it rose, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose 
went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. In the ancient Near East, the term magi was used to describe a category of people who were interested in dreams and astrology and magic. They were not Jews, but they were from surrounding nations. And interestingly enough, I mean, God had told his people never to be involved in these things. Astrology and magic are not things for the people of God. And yet God invites these wise men, these magi, to come to the first Christmas. This is certainly a foreshadowing of God's great love for the rest of the world. See, God didn't send Jesus to be a Savior just for Israel, but for the, for all of humanity. Now, the Magi bring three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these are very interesting gifts because they are prophetic in nature. Each of them have a meaning associated with them. Gold was given to royalty. And it recognized the sense that Jesus was the king of the Jews. He was the king of God's kingdom. And so this prophetic gift was given at his birth to foreshadow what he would ultimately do in bringing about the kingdom of God. And next, there was frankincense. And frankincense was given as a prayer. It, was, it accompanied prayer and worship in the temple. And giving it to Jesus was also a sign that they were recognizing that this was no ordinary child, but this was in fact the Son of God. And finally, the most curious gift of all was myrrh. Myrrh was used in the burial process. And to give this during Jesus' early childhood was a very strange gift. I mean, Jesus didn't get the normal standard gifts from these magi. He didn't get stuffed animals or storybooks. No, he got gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But you see, myrrh foreshadowed the ultimate thing that Jesus was going to do. God had sent Jesus to come to die for humanity. And in that death, to take care of our ultimate problems of sin and death. The Bible describes humanity as created in the image of God. You and I were designed and made from the beginning to be in fellowship, in closeness, in relationship with God. We were designed to take care of the world and one another. But early in our story, we rebelled against God and sin and death became our new reality. We may try and downplay that. We may try and forget that. But what God says in the gospel is this. You can't solve the problem of sin and death on your own. But I have sent my son to come and take this on himself. To die for you and to bring you into new life. The promise of the gospel is this. If you trust in Jesus, you can be born again. And this is what the Christmas narrative tells us about the love of God. The love of God 
sacrifices so that we can be reborn. The love of God sacrifices so that we can be reborn. As we wrap up our Christmas service for today, I wrote a simple prayer that I hope we can recite together to recognize the significance of God's love in this Advent season, to receive it fully, and then to go out and live in kind. Let us pray together. God of love, this Christmas, teach me to order my life around your love. Thank you for your humble love, a love that welcomes shepherds, tax collectors, sinners, and outcasts. Thank you for your ever-present love, a love that meets me even in my guilt and shame, a love that pierces through boastfulness, posturing, and pride. Thank you for your sacrificial love, a love that has saved me from sin and death. And today, I put my trust in you. Lead me into new life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey friends, one last note before we go today. I know we're going to say our sending prayer in just a moment, but before we do so, I just wanted to acknowledge, I know this Christmas is a tough one for many people. Uh, 2020 has been a really difficult year, and I wish so much that we could have met in person to share embraces, to uh, shake hands, and to say Merry Christmas to one another in person. That looks like it's going to have to happen in 2021. There are good signs that 2021 will be a much better year. So I long for and pray for that day when we can be together again. But for this year, I've asked a few people to be able to share uh, Merry Christmas wishes online. uh, And I hope this brings some cheer your way. And let's go out remembering that Christ has come to be with us. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus, amen. Amen.